Well, again, it's uh, great to be here. Thank you for the warmth of your welcome uh, to me and to Heather, my wife, who's with me. And this is the second part of a two-part uh, talk, if you like. Um, and I left on Friday evening uh, with a question. And the question really relates to Peter's encouragement to us not to give up, to keep going in a straight line, to keep going, keep growing, keep developing, adding qualities to our life because it is eternally worthwhile. In other words, he has a view of life which is very different from the approach to life of the surrounding world, both in his day and in our own. His view of life was that this is simply the introduction to the big story that is yet to happen. That there is an eternal kingdom, that this world is not the only one there is. And that therefore there is a connection between our experience in this life and the one to come. And we're given the opportunity, according to Peter, to use the time. The purpose of time is to grow to become more like Jesus Christ. That is his vision of life. That's how he sees it. Now, is he right? <laughs> how can he be so confident? I've always been interested in people's last words. Maybe you have the same kind of interest. I can remember my father's final words uh, to me. Um, I was amused to find that the English novelist George Orwell, his last written words were these, at 50, everyone has the face he deserves. <laughs> I don't think George Orwell realized perhaps that, that those would be his last words. More seriously, the famous physicist Stephen Hawking, his last written words were these, there is no God. And no one directs the universe. So that is the polar opposite to um, Peter's last written words at the end of this little letter, at the end of chapter 3. His final words are almost the same as his first. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord, Je Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. There's his vision. So a physicist and a fisherman, which one is right? And this isn't simply of academic interest, because to follow Jesus in a world like this is complicated. It is difficult. It involves misunderstanding, misrepresentation, discrimination, persecution, even death itself. Peter understood very well the implications of what he was encouraging people in those days to do and what he's encouraging us. This wasn't just a Sunday afternoon encouragement and life is all rosy and there's no problem and everybody will applaud you if you live like this. They didn't then and they don't now. So was he right to be so confident? How could he be? 
so confident. And when we see the things that are happening in our world that have been so well referred to this morning, the tragedies in our world, the butchery of humanity, it raises all kinds of questions. And our human minds are too small to take in the dimensions of this. We find it hard enough to deal with the reversals in our own life, let alone what's happening in the Ukraine or in Palestine and Israel. How can we have that confidence? So this is Peter writing to us. He says in his letter, I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them, you're firmly established in the truth. This is verse 12 of chapter 1. I think it is right to refresh your memory. So that's all I'm doing. It's just reminding us of what is at the heart of this. As long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside, as our Lord Jesus has made clear to me. I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories or myths when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And we also have the prophetic message, and I've changed the translation slightly, as something completely reliable, as something utterly sure. It's translated perhaps made more sure. But what it means, it's, a, it's to use the grammar, it's a comparative use of superlative. It's not more sure than something else. It's something that is totally sure we have the prophetic word to which you would do well to pay attention as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. Prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And Peter is giving us, therefore, two core reasons why both he and we can be confident that the life he is calling us to However much we're maligned and misunderstood and misrepresented is eternally worthwhile. He gives us two reasons. Number one, he tells us very clearly, we are not following 
cleverly devised stories. Now that's a, a word that comes, that he uses, comes into English as the word myth. We're not following myths. And some of you will probably know from way back in school days that the Greek culture had all kinds of myths and legends, which Peter knew very well. Some of you studied them in school, in fact, probably, or had storybooks full of the myths and legends. Ireland has its own wonderful stories of the Giants Causeway and Ben and Donner and all that stuff. It was great. Myths, legends, stories that are made up to convey an idea, a point, a uh, uh, a truth, if you like, or a value such as love and honor and loyalty and steadfastness. But they're not true, literally. And a lot of people think that that's what we have in the gospel. And in fact, when I was a student, and it's a long time ago now, uh, when I was at school, I did RE, religious education, it was called. I don't know what it's called now, but... My religious education teacher told me and told the rest of the class that these stories in the gospel of Jesus walking on water and turning water into wine, the resurrection, they're myths. They're invented stories. You see, what happened was the early Christians, they were so enamored with Jesus that they, they wanted to tell everybody just how important Jesus was, so they invented these stories that conveyed what they felt about Jesus, but they're not literally true. And so what we have to do as we go to the Gospels, we have to demythologize, take all that kind of myth and legend out, and then we'll get to authentic Christianity, although people who teach that can't quite agree what authentic Christianity is and causes more confusion. But that kind of thing taught to me when I was 15 and 16 and 17 in school was taught to me again when I was at university and it's taught and had a huge influence. And the result of that is people losing confidence that this is literally true, that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And what then happens is that people turn and they focus on social stuff and on ethics, and, but not on eternity and the resurrection and the future life. And if you trace the story, even in the evangelical church, sadly, so little talk in recent times about the future hope, the future life, the return of Jesus. People have lost confidence in the gospel lost confidence in Scripture. And Peter is saying very clearly, whatever future bishops might say, he's saying, we're not following myths like that. I know what a myth is, and we're not following them because we were eyewitnesses. This is history. We were there. We experienced it for ourselves. We heard the voice. What a remarkable experience. And out of all the things that Peter could have referred to, he refers to an incident that we call the transfiguration of Christ. You can read about it in Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke chapter 9. Peter is the only New Testament letter writer who refers to it. Well, he was there. But he refers to it because out of all the things that he experienced, this was the thing that convinced him that it would be worthwhile to follow Jesus Christ. Because in the context, in the Gospels, 
Jesus had just announced to them that the Son of Man is going to be delivered up and he's going to suffer many things, and Peter was absolutely appalled. Not simply because he didn't want Jesus to die, but because he was calculating in his mind, listen, I left home, I've left my business, I've followed, I've invested nearly three years of my life and time in following this Jesus, and he's now telling me that he's going to be rejected and killed. I mean, have I wasted my time? Is this just a, just a mirage? It's just a, you know? And while he was calculating this, then Jesus said, listen, you need to understand that if you want to keep your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. And that's kind of a conundrum, as we would say. How does that work? If you want to keep your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose it for my sake, you'll find it. But how does that work? And to demonstrate how it worked, Jesus then said to him, there's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. They'll not taste death until they see it. That's the normal way of seeing the kingdom of God. It's to go through death. No one five minutes after the dead will have any doubts about the reality of the kingdom of God. No one. The issue is seeing it before. It's perceiving its reality before. And to help these men, Jesus took three of them, Peter, James, and John, up a mountain. And while he was praying, he was transformed before them, his clothing brighter than anything white that the earth can produce, as Mark puts it. No laundry on earth could produce clothes this white. The power of God, his face shining beyond the brightness of the sun at midday. If you like, God pulled the veil apart just for a few moments, that veil that separates this world from the reality of the eternal world. You see, we think this is the solid world. This is the real thing. And we listen to the news. We go to our work. And, and everything, most things are carried out with any re without any reference to God at all, to eternity at all. It's as if there was no such thing as the kingdom of God for the vast majority of people in our culture. But Jesus pulled the veil aside just for a moment. And suddenly they were given to see eternal reality, and it blew their mind. It was so powerful that they almost fell asleep. They were so psychologically overcome by the experience. But in addition to what they saw, they also heard something. This wasn't some trick of the light in the early morning. There was a voice that spoke. There was a cloud, and they were standing on the mountain. I don't know if you've ever been on the, on the mountain. Uh, I've been up the morns when the clouds have approached, and it's a really interesting thing. But that's not the experience they had. The way Luke describes it is that as if the cloud was the static thing, and they were swept into it. They suddenly realized that the world they were on was fragile, temporary, it's not the real thing. The reality is in that cloud, supreme reality. And out of that cloud came the voice, this is my son. 
in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That changed his life. That experience changed his life. He realized that, yes, there was the voice of those around him in the world who were saying, Peter, we're going to kill Jesus, and if you follow him, I might kill you. I mean, don't waste your life, young man. You've got talent. You've got leadership ability. I mean, we can use people like you. I mean, you may be a fisherman, but we can see that you have real potential to be a leader of the common people. Why waste your time with Jesus? And then there was another voice that said, this is my unique son. And during that experience on the mountain, Peter, James, and John were given to listen in to a discussion between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. I mean, it, it just boggles the mind. I mean, Moses said, Disappeared. Nobody knew he was buried. Elijah had been taken up into heaven, a chariot of fire. They had remarkable exoduses out of this world. And suddenly, across time and space, they were brought and they stood with Jesus on this mountain. And Peter, James, and John were listening in as they discussed the exodus that Jesus was going to accomplish at Jerusalem. I'd love to have been there, would you not? I think mean, to listen in as the divine son of God and the great lawgiver and the great prophet stood together and talked with Jesus the strategy of the cross, the exodus that Jesus was going to make out of this world. It's a different perspective, isn't it? Jesus was not some poor young man, very talented but misunderstood, who became the victim of nasty politics. God in control, the exodus he was going to accomplish, the reality of the eternal world and a God who's in control, changed his life. That's why he is so confident, so much urging us. This is no mere theory for him. He writes here of putting aside the tent of his body. A tent is a kind of temporary mobile dwelling, just like the human body. It's not the final reality. Peter knew that. He's going to be putting that aside and moving on. Listen to the confidence of the man in the future. He's looking forward, not looking back. His eyes are filled with that future glory and the destination. He's not been morbid or sad. He's an old man now, yes. He spent most of his adult life following Christ, seeking to make progress for heaven. And he can almost see it and taste it and hear its music and its poetry. And in a short while, throw the tent aside and I'm going. Fantastic approach. This is real. It's not just some theory for him. It's been real. It's been a dynamic in his life right through to this point, and it still is. It's not a myth. And we say, well, that's fine for him, and I'm happy to take that, and Peter gave his life for it, so obviously he believed it. But I wasn't there. I never saw it. Were you there? Well, no, you weren't there. 
I mean, if only God would give me an experience like that, that would make me confident for a half a minute, says Peter. There's something else. There's something else that is utterly sure. And that is the scriptures, the prophetic message, God's word. We also have, he says, the message as something utterly reliable. Pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place. What do we need to understand about this? What do we need to understand about the Bible, which is what we now call it? The key thing we need to understand, says Peter, is that it didn't come about through clever human beings sitting down, analyzing their circumstances, and coming up with a theory of what the future might look like. That's not what happened. What happened was that these prophets, though human, and they were human with their human personalities, they spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's the core thing to understand. And that, of course, is the core thing that is everywhere being denied or at least attacked. This is the central thing, says Peter. You need to understand that. Prophecy came from God, and the explanation that God often gave along with the prophecy also came from God. The prophets didn't explain their experience by making up stories. False teachers do that, as he tells us in the next chapter. The prophets didn't do that. Prophecy came from God. God has spoken. And that's why you can be sure. Because I wouldn't know very much about you unless you told me. You'd have to reveal yourself to me. Otherwise, I wouldn't know. I might find out your name. I might see some bits of your character. If I stuck around for a while and find out your age, maybe even find out how much money you had in the bank. But the real you, I could never know that unless you revealed it. God has spoken. God has revealed himself. So, says Peter, pay attention to this word as to a light shining in a dark place. How do we make it real? By doing what he said. Paying attention to it. And you see, this is often the problem. Many people simply, many people in the church today simply take this as another theory. Do you believe that the Bible is the word of God? Oh, yes, of course I do. Oh, really? How much attention do you pay to it? Oh. I mean in your daily work and how you manage your home and how you deal with your own feelings and desires and how you understand the universe 
as you do your physics and your chemistry and your medicine and teach your English at work in the factory floor. What impact is having? Are you paying attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place? Or is it just a closed, like a torch that's thrown away in a drawer? And you occasionally take it out just to make sure the batteries are working. And each of us, of course, have to answer that question for ourselves. Pay attention to what God has said. What's the impact if we do? And here Peter describes what happens in very poetic terms. Pay attention. As to a light shining in a dark place, we live in a dark place, don't we? I mean, it is beautiful and the sun's shining today and there's so much to enjoy and so many good things, but there is a darkness in this world. And we've been reminded horrifically of the darkness of the human heart. Here's a light shining in a dark place. Pay attention to it until something happens. And what is that something? Well, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. I, I love that Peter was a poet. Um, he was a fisherman, of course. And he had had lots of experience of this thing physically, of being out in his boat all night and then watching the day dawn, fishing all night and then suddenly, well, I don't know if you're given to watching that. I'm a photographer and uh, what I like to do is to go out. Well, I don't like to do it because in the summer especially, you have to get up about 2.30 in order to see the dawn rise. It's easier in the winter. And to go out in the, in, the, in the dark when my wife thinks I'm utterly crazy, and I am, she's right. But to go out to the coast, and it's still dark, and then you begin to see just the light in the east, and that sort of gray light. And gradually as you watch, it turns into blue. And at certain times of the year, and at this time of the year, the morning star rises, Venus in the eastern sky. And he's thinking of that experience and those long dark nights waiting for dawn. And he said, paying attention to the word of God in your life is like that. You see, a lot of people read this and think he's talking about the second coming. He isn't. It's not until the morning star rises in the sky. It's until the morning star rises in your heart. In other words, what he's saying is this, that as you pay attention to the word, something happens inside you. There is a real experience of God and rising hope an increasing sense of the reality of this to the point where you don't have to turn around and say to Peter, it's not fair, you were on the mountain and I wasn't. But rather you say to Peter, I know what you mean. I've heard that voice too in my own heart through the word of God. 
How are we getting on? So it's not, I'm not here to tell anybody off. That's not the point. It's to actually encourage us in dark days that there is a light. There is hope. There is the potential. And you can test it yourself. Christianity is testable. Where you pay attention to the word until you experience this reality. Let me be, as I finish, and I am finishing, so don't worry. It's two minutes to go and then my time is up. Isn't that good? Timing is wonderful. Let me just make one practical suggestion. Because you've probably heard all kinds of encouragements to engage with scripture, and so have I. But could I suggest one way of doing that that you might find helpful? And if you don't, that's fine. But I find it helpful. It was pointed out to me many, many, many years ago, <laughs> over 60 years ago. Uh, no, maybe not quite that, certainly over 50. That God is the best teacher in the universe by definition. Isn't he? I mean, yeah. And God has chosen to reveal himself in books. Interesting. Of all kinds of books. Some of them are long, some of them are short, some are poetry, some are gospel, some are letter, all sorts of things to suit every mood and occasion, if you like. So it was suggested to me that one of the things I could do to make this word, this prophetic word real, is to select one book, one short book, and read it as it was written. Not reading the first three verses and then closing and say, well, I'll read the next three next week. A verse a day keeps the devil away, you remember? Like the apple a day keeps the... Um, but rather, to engage with it. We don't all have the same relationship to the written word. I understand that. But nowadays, what you can do is, if you've got a phone, you can actually listen to David Suchet read it to you. <laughs> or... If you like the ESV, believe it or not, you can listen to my daughter read it to you. Because Kristen reads the ESV. Wouldn't that be nice? A good Northern Ireland voice with talking about grace and all the rest of it. But engage with it. What I mean is then just find a space and a place that attends to your psychology, not last minute at night if you can't stay awake, but a time when you can, to either listen or to read, and to read Second Peter. It's only got three chapters. It will only take you at most 15 minutes to read and probably less. And when you've done that, read it again. And when you've done that, read it again. And when you've done that, read it again. It's simple, isn't it? But what you're doing is, you're engaging with your word. You're starting to pay attention. You will notice different things each time. And even without trying to memorize it, it will start to sink into your mind. And during the day, the words will come back to you. And you're giving the Holy Spirit an opportunity to use the word of God in your life. Don't read commentaries. Not yet, anyway. And this is not the same as listening to podcasts and sermons, no matter how wonderful they are. You could listen to all the sermons and podcasts in the world and still find yourself in a spiritual desert. This is about you and God engaging 
with his word, paying attention for you in your life with an open heart and saying, Lord Jesus, speak to me. Now, I, well, I was going to say I guarantee, but I can't do that. But what I would suggest is if you did that for one month starting today and took Second Peter and made that something that you engage with and you pay attention to the whole thing once a day for 31 days, by the end of it, you'll know Second Peter. And I wouldn't at all be surprised if you'd be saying, you know, I felt I could see a bit of light the dawn beginning to rise in the sky. I could almost glimpse the morning star because the thing is becoming real and these issues are becoming important. And I met with God because the purpose of Scripture is so that we would encounter God. It is there to make God and the eternal world real to us. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to be together to take bread and wine and to remind ourselves of what is at the heart of all of this, the center point of history where Jesus, the Son of God, loved us unto death and gave himself for us. Thank you for revealing your heart and your character to us. Thank you for giving us your spirit. Thank you for giving us your word. Now we pray that for us living in dark days, that we would pay attention to this light that shines and we would have a growing confidence, a growing personal experience of meeting with you, of encountering you, of hearing your voice speaking from your word into our daily lives. We pray for your glory until Jesus returns. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.